Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Good morning. My name is Adam. I'm one of the members of this church, not one of the pastors, but grateful for Brandon and giving the opportunity to come and share God's word this morning. And so um, let's, let's get into it, shall we? If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to join me in the book of John, John chapter 1. Um, so we've been kind of in a series the last several weeks of Advent, looking at John chapter 1 and this idea of who Jesus is, his identity, and him coming. And so we're going to get into that this morning a little bit more. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14 is where we will be. As you're turning there, I want to wish you all a sincere um, Merry Christmas today. I hope that you all are having a wonderful holiday season. Um, ideally, this is the most wonderful time of the year for you. But I do also recognize that we live in the real world where things aren't always so wonderful. And there may be a lot of things going on for you today, even as we have the beauty of the decorations, the candles are lit. You might have traditions that you're enjoying with your family and loved ones. And you also may have grief for a lot of different reasons. Um, perhaps you're missing someone today. Maybe you have disunity or issues in your home right now with family or friends. Um, maybe the pressure of having, making a livelihood continues to bear down, as we all know how that can be, especially when we're supposed to be buying things for people and all of the pressure that can come with this time of year. Um, some of you may have gotten some difficult news recently. Maybe you're in the midst of a battle, health or otherwise. Maybe you have trauma and scars that you carry from your past. Maybe not. Maybe it is all good right now. And to that we say, thank God. But we know that life ebbs and flows. It often feels messy because it is messy, because that's the world we live in. It's a weary world, as one hymn says. And because all that's true, I hope the text today can be a source of encouragement for us. And I think it will be because it contains good news for all of us. We'll see who Jesus is, what he has done to reach us, and what kind of love he has for people like you and me. Appropriately, we light the candle of love today, and we're going to talk about that a good bit this morning. No matter what you face, no matter what's going on in your life, there is someone who cares for you, who understands you, and he is God with us. And that's good news. Please join me as we read from the book of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Here's what John writes. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let us pray. Most gracious Lord, in these moments we have together, may you speak to us through your word. May your Holy Spirit awaken us to your truth. Lord, may it sink deeply into the depths of our spirits. May it uplift us from the pits we may be occupying. And God, may it push us forward as we behold your glory now and always. We pray these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. So this text, these verses, um, they, they point us to 
a really wild theological concept called the incarnation. That's what I want to unpack a little bit today. The incarnation is basically the idea that Jesus came. That's a very simple way of saying a very big, complicated idea. So we're going to walk through that a little bit today as we look at what John writes and what he offers us about who Jesus is. And hopefully, as we understand some of these things, it's going to uplift us a little bit if we are in a difficult spot, or it's going to encourage us even further if we're at the highest point in our lives, because there's always good news when it comes to Jesus, and that always is going to push us even further than we are right now. So um, as we get into it, there are a few things I want us to catch as we go through. And the first one is this. John is letting us know that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. If you've been around for a couple of weeks, the cat's already out of the bag on that, okay? Um, When John uses the word that our English Bibles um, translate to a, you might see capital W word there. It's here in 14. It was back in verse 1. He's describing God the Son. Jesus as God the Son. As Jason Keel so effectively uh, explained in his sermon a few weeks ago, um, this, this capital word business is actually a very um, ancient philosophical idea. You know, the, think about the Greeks, those kind of people who had uh, these, these deep ways of looking at the universe and, you know, kind of the foundations of our philosophical world now. Um, they took this idea of word or in their language, logos, and it described for the Greco-Roman culture the idea of a, a reason or an ordering or a foundation behind the universe, you know, logic, if you will, behind the universe. And this idea that things are held and bound together and keep moving, or perhaps, you know, more recently we'd say a theory of everything you might hear from from philosophical physics right now. Um, But John presents it differently than the Greeks would have, though, because he tells us that the logos is not some obscure force or um, concept. It's a person. The logos is a person. The word is the son. S-O-N, the second person of the Trinity. Um, John explains that the word was with God and the word was God and that all things were made by him. He, Jesus, the son, is the power and creator behind the universe. He is God. Just as an aside, by the way, it's really important to see how John is offering some insight into how the persons of the Trinity interact here. The Spirit isn't specifically mentioned in in the verses we read, but if you keep reading in the Gospel of John, he's going to tell us a lot about the Spirit later. Um, He gives us a a very important theology of the Holy Spirit later on, but right now he's kind of focusing on the Father and the Son. But in that, we see this plurality within the Godhead, right? You know, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are three distinct persons, and they interact with one another. There's sort of this dance um, in the midst of, of, of the Godhead, and it's very mysterious and very easy to fall into heresy, and lots of people throughout history have done just that. We don't want to do that today. But what we read here is a very incredible glimpse into the inner relationship of the Trinity. And in verse 18 here in chapter 1, we read that the Son is at the side of the Father. Or your, your Bible may have something more literal from the Greek translation, which is more, um, it, it would say, in the bosom of the Father or near the Father's heart. And it's describing this idea of a loving relationship between them. Near the Father's heart, in the bosom of the Father. Imagine like cradling your child and holding them close to your chest. That's kind of the picture that we're offered here. This is the idea of a loving relationship between them, which is mysterious, right? And nonetheless, here it is. And what it tells us is that love predates the universe. Love predates created beings like us. Love has eternally existed within the triune God himself. So we experience love now as people, not because like we created it, 
Not because God made it to give it to us. Not because God just, you know, discovered it when he finally had us to look at, right, in love. No, it's, he, he was always perfectly content within himself, right? And that's what we see here. And, and that's humbling, right, because it kind of tells us we're not as big of a deal as we often think we are, but also imagine just how much it uplifts us and shows the value that we have for God, that this unique divine love is extended out to us in such a personal way here. It's humbling. It's beautiful. And it lets us understand why we are loving people, because we bear the image of God. So we reflect that about him. Imperfectly as we do, nonetheless, we love because he first loved us, we read. It's incredible. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to that shortly. But I want, I want you to think about that as we think about this nature of what love is and how it comes from God as the triune God, because that's all very important. So last week, as Brandon helped us see the word or the son of God or Jesus or whatever name or title we read that he has, um, we talked about last week is that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. In other words, when we see Jesus, that is who God is. That's what God is like. And, and, and John's reiterating that here in verse 18. Jesus, who's in the bosom of the Father from all eternity, now we see him. He is the exact representation of who God is. So when we look upon Jesus, we see God. So you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus because Jesus is God. One of my favorite passages in the Gospel of John actually takes place within um, this same chapter, chapter one, later on toward the end. Um, I'll summarize it a little bit here, but um, basically Jesus is out. He's calling his disciples. He calls Philip. Anybody remember Philip? And he's like, hey, come follow me. And so Philip does. Uh, we don't really get an idea of what really happened there. It's, it's all very quick. Um, and so it says that Philip goes to find who? You guys remember? Nathaniel, right? Yes, very good. And so he goes to find Nathaniel. And he's like, Nathaniel, look, we found the one we've been waiting for. We found the, the Messiah that was promised, which is a loaded statement that we can't get into today, but basically God's promised this from the beginning. He's finally here. This is the one that we have all been waiting for for thousands of years. And he says he's Jesus from Nazareth. And that Nazareth business, you know, rings a bell in Nathaniel's head because um, he's apparently kind of prejudiced against people from Nazareth. He's like, this is like the backwoods kind of thing. He's like, okay. And he, and he says straight up, he's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That, that's his question. Basically, that trash, you know, that's, that's kind of the idea. And it's really amazing how Philip responds. Because all he says is, come and see. He's, he doesn't say, well, not Nathaniel. Come on, let's not say anything. We don't want anybody to hear you say. You know, it's, it's not, there's no discussion. It's just, come and see. Come and see for yourself. Come check it out. If you see him, you're going to have no doubt. That's, that's the idea. That's, 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 it's very simple. Come and see. And so Nathaniel does just that. And I can imagine he's skeptical, right? He's ready to prove Philip wrong. He's ready to say, okay, this isn't really who you think it is. That's embarrassing. You thought they were from Nazareth. I won't tell anyone. And he goes and he sees Jesus. And the way John narrates it, you have the skepticism, and then you have a couple of verses, and then you have Nathaniel confessing him as, in fact, who Philip said he was. What happened? A short interaction with Jesus, and he's like, okay, this, there is something to this guy. Now, of course, he didn't really understand everything about Jesus in that moment, and the glory would be further revealed later on. But his instinct told him, this guy's different. When you see Jesus, when you meet him, you see God, and he's different. He's special. And that's why John brings Moses up in verse 17 here, by the way. You know, Moses just kind of like, what is Moses doing here? Um, Moses, as you may know, is a highly important figure to, of course, the Jewish people, to Judaism, to the Old Testament. For us as Christians looking back at the Old Testament, like Moses is an important guy. 
And, and we, we know he shows up in the New Testament as a very important figure at the transfiguration. Like, like Moses is an important person, okay? But John mentions him, and he kind of like the way he, he says it here, it's almost like he's kind of pushing Moses aside a little bit. And what he's doing is he's mentioning Moses, important as he was, as the one who was given the law. And he's saying, now like imagine somebody more important than that. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is more important than Moses. He's not diminishing Moses, but he's actually just reordering things appropriately to show who's actually the most important figure. And it's Jesus because he's God. And so anyway, that Jesus is greater even than the greatest prophets and leaders because he is God. That's really the bottom line. And that's all important to understand as we think about what it means to follow Jesus, uh, that he's God. He is greater than everything we could imagine, than anyone we could imagine. He's greatly to be praised. That's important because He's not just our buddy, in other words. He's God. When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about God. But he's not just the vague, transcendent God that we often hear referenced in, you know, in our world, in our culture, you know, a higher power, or so to speak. You know, you, you, of course, we could all think of the examples, award shows, I want to thank God, you know, or, or what, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, like there's this vague idea of God. He's, he's up there somewhere. And he's bigger than me, and he's great, and he, he blesses me in some mysterious way, and I benefit from that on occasion. And, and yes, God is up there, and God is beyond us, and he is what we call transcendent. He, he is bigger than us and beyond us. That's all true. But then we have this idea of Jesus, and he's not just transcendent, right? God is not far away anymore. He's close. He's near. Um, he is intimately close to us, as we read here. And John summarizes that idea with the very mysterious line here, John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That means that Jesus is one of us. That's the second thing. Jesus is God, but he's one of us. That's the second thing. Jesus is one of us. I'm going to say something that probably won't change your life and impact you as deeply as it probably should. But prepare yourselves. Are you ready? Okay. Here goes. God became a man. Okay? See, nobody's reacting. God became a man. How does that statement hit you today? Familiar, probably, right? Ordinary, right? It's just what we believe, right? God became a man. If your mind is blown by that today, good. Hang tight. We'll be right back to unpack it. But if you're like me, and even as I read this to make this point, I'm like not really feeling it, you know, because it's so ordinary, it's so familiar. But maybe we should take a step back and really think about what's being expressed when we say God became a man. Anybody ever seen Undercover Bosses? Are we familiar? It's, it's good stuff, right? Uh, it's a wild concept for a show. If you don't know, if maybe you're unfamiliar, it's, I, mean, I don't even think it's on now, but it, like, maybe it is. I don't, I don't have cable, but it's a show and it was network television. And, and the idea is that the CEO of some big company, um, you know, in com often companies you've heard of, I remember watching episodes and I was like, oh wow, okay, yeah, that's my trash company or whatever. You know, like some big company, they would take, he or her, they, they would go and disguise themselves and then, like, there'd be hidden cameras somehow. And, you know, and it's sort of like, is this all real? I don't know. But, like, the idea is that it is. So there's hidden cameras following them around, and they're going to work at the lower levels of their company. And so they're working amongst lower-level employees. And, 
like the one episode was about the trash company and he was like driving garbage trucks with this person kind of thing, right? And they're sorting out recycling things and, and it's the CEO of the company doing this kind of stuff. And, and they're usually not very good at it. And so it's kind of a humbling thing, you know? But along the way, they're meeting these employees that are way beneath their status, right? And they're, they're being trained by them and you can just see the frustration like, oh, this person's not good at this job, you know? Like, and, um, but as they're working together, they have interactions and, and they'll, they'll learn things about these employees. And some of it's like, frustrations about management, you know, and like, they, I don't know why they run the company this way. This is stupid. And then, but then there's stuff like, here's my personal life and I've got this issue, right? Or my, I have this, this loved one is sick or I can't afford this or that. And so by the end, of course, there's the big reveal. I'm, I'm the CEO and I'm going to change your life. Here's some money and a, a promotion and heartwarming stuff, you know, whatever. And, um, you, I think you can stream it on Hulu if you're interested, but, um, but like seriously though, imagine finding out that the, the person that you've been training all week is actually your boss's boss's boss or whatever, you know, and they're way, they're like, what are they doing here? That's wild to think about. I can't imagine I would be very happy to find that out until they start handing me money. But like, you know, it's like that would be weird and wild. Like, what are they doing here? I came across an interesting story the other day. In 2018, during, uh, while well, giving an interview, the king of... The Netherlands, true story, the king of the Netherlands disclosed that he regularly co-pilots flights for a major airline in Europe. Like the king of the Netherlands is out flying planes, apparently. But that's wild. Like imagine you're on a flight and the voice comes over and like, hey, you know, welcome to the airline. You know, thank you for being here. We're approaching our destination. And you're like, oh, that voice sounds familiar. And then like the plane lands and you know the cockpit opens and you're walking out and you look and it's like straight up Joe Biden is flying your plane. Like that that's wild. You know what I mean? And um, no comment, but like <laughs> but like imagine if you live in the Netherlands and the king is flying your plane around. Something within us, we're like, wow, they don't belong there, you know? I can't imagine them rubbing elbows with us. You know, like and and we understand why we have that instinct. You know, we, we order ourselves in society, right or wrong. I mean, that's how it goes, right? And so we understand why we would, like, that'd be weird if Tim Tebow was coaching my kid's football team, right? You know? And here we have the incarnation. And God becomes a man. And God lives amongst us as one of us. That is a mysterious, wild idea. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. While celebrities or kings or you know, people of different echelons of society come down to see us and we think that's wild, think about God coming down to see us. The Apostle Paul um, explains it this way. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. God became a man, susceptible even to death. We're used to hearing about that, but let the facade of ordinary break long enough to truly marvel at that mysterious idea. This is extraordinary stuff. John 1 probably would not have been too terribly controversial for the Greco-Roman people who might have read it at that time, up to a point. 
You know, that idea of an idea behind the universe, the word, you know, you might call it God, you might call it something else. They might not have worded it exactly the way John did. They're like, okay, yeah, the, the logos, um, you know, creates everything. And, all, and, and then you get to like this idea in verse 14. And then they'd be like, okay, that, that's a little bit crazy even for us. And we believe Zeus comes down and has kids regularly with humans. Like this is a wild idea that we just kind of like, okay, sure. Don't shrug it off. Think about it. Think about the mystery of the incarnation. There's an old prayer from Eastern Christian traditions that encapsulates all of this well. Here's what they would say. We see most eloquent orators voiceless as fish when they must speak of thee, O Jesus, our Savior. For it is beyond their power to tell how thou art both perfect man and immutable God at the same time. Amen. May that so confound us. Growing up with Christianity all around us presents plenty of benefits and blessings. Don't get me wrong. But it also brings the challenge of normalizing things that should confound us. The Word made flesh, the Son of God becoming incarnate, is a wondrous mystery. You want to talk about the magic of Christmas? Talk about the incarnation. This is a truly fantastical idea. One modern Christmas song has a line that I think sums it up very nicely. There within the manger lies the one who made the starry skies. Let that sink in for a minute. And it's a big deal, the incarnation. But not just because God became a man, as big as that is. It's a big deal because of why he chose to do that. Being both truly God and truly one of us, Jesus uniquely reveals God's love for humanity to us. And that's the third thing we see here. Jesus reveals God's love for us. I'm going to try something. All right? I'm going to say a line, and I want you to say the rest of it if you know it. Okay? Got it? I'm not going to sing it. I should, but I won't, and you're welcome. Like a good neighbor. Yes, thank you. I was really worried everyone was going to be like, what? So this is not a sponsored post or whatever. You know, like, I don't even have State Farm anymore. It's a fine product, but the neighborhood got a little expensive, if you know what I mean. But it's an effective slogan, though. A very effective slogan. We can all relate to the idea of a good neighbor, right? A good neighbor is irreplaceable. Knowing that there's somebody around you who can... Be trusted to take care of your home and watch your pets if you have to travel, or um, they're going to help you do work in your yard, maybe put up a fence. Um, they'll loan you the proverbial cup of flour, right? Just, it just brings security to our lives. Conversely, many of us know what it can be like when our neighbors aren't so good. You know, maybe, maybe that's you. Something to work on. <laughs> there are a surprising number of stories where the plot involves a murder related to contested property lines. Have you all noticed that? Apparently, it's like really relatable to have issues with your neighbors. But I digress. The point is that we live, who we live with deeply impacts us, for better or worse. John tells us here in verse 14, the word dwelt among us. And that image is meant to convey the idea of somebody living amongst us. Being a neighbor. One translation literally puts it, the word became flesh and took up residence among us. Which doesn't sound very Bible-y, but it, it is what it is, right? Jesus moved into the neighborhood. That's, that's, what, that's what we're reading here. As you can imagine, God moving in completely changes the neighborhood. 
In the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, we read one of the most cynical passages in, I think, all of literature. Some of you may be familiar with it. Um, let's, let's read through it real quick. In verse 2 of that chapter, here's what it says. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What a way to start. What does a person gain for all his efforts and his labors at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting. It hurries back to the place where it rises. This idea of like, even the sun hates its life. You know, it's just, it's just labors and labors and labors. Gusting, in the, gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind returns its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there will all, they will flow again. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. That's pretty depressing, isn't it? Now consider how the incarnation of Jesus shatters that cynicism. There's nothing new under the sun until all of a sudden there is. All of a sudden there is something new. The word became flesh and came into the world. Something new has happened under the sun. And it's the biggest thing that could have happened. God enters into the cynicism to offer grace. So we read here. John says that Jesus, you know, is full of grace and truth. We've seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now he'll go on in, his, in this book, this gospel of John, to discuss Jesus being the truth quite a bit. Truth is a pretty important theme in this book, but right here, it's not really the emphasis because we also see the word grace here, which interestingly enough, does not appear anywhere else in the gospel of John, just right here. But count how many times it's there. It's there four times. Grace is the emphasis that we are supposed to find here in these verses. Now, God's grace is offered out of the abundance of his love for us. Like we said, you know, he is fully love within himself, and he extends that to us. We are recipients, unique recipients of this divine love. And remember, God, who's always been forever, within the Godhead, there is this perfect love in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what exactly all that means is certainly mysterious. And again, people get really heretical really quick. We don't want to do that. What we do know is that we find ourselves to be uniquely privileged. We are uniquely privileged to be invited into a loving relationship with God. We are objects of his love. And we have been from eternity past. Even before he laid the foundation of the world, we read in Ephesians 1, he set his affections on us. And we read in Ephesians 2 that he extends grace because of his great love with which he loved us. So this is the love that God extends. His love compels him to come and save us. That's what John 3.16 tells us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And we see so many examples of what God looks like as we look at the life of Christ in the Gospels. Even just within this book, the Gospel of John, think about the stories you may know, right? Um, we have the example of Jesus and the woman at the well. Or Jesus and the man born blind in John chapter 9. And Jesus feeding the crowds. He didn't have to do that. He could have, the disciples said, hey, send them to go get something to eat. And he's like, okay, now I'll feed them. Thank you very much. Um, or Jesus at Lazarus' tomb. That last example you may recall was the shortest verse in the Bible. That's where he weeps. He weeps at the tomb of this man alongside his sisters. And it says that he's compelled and moved within his spirit because of the grief that he experiences with them. 
And there it is. God has empathy for us. God has empathy for us. He understands us. He knows what it's like to face trouble and grief. He's familiar with the struggles that we face because he lived here. He's been here. He understands the struggles of the neighborhood, right? He understands what it is to hurt and to lose a loved one. Some hypothesize that by the time Jesus died on the cross, his stepfather, or his adopted father rather, Joseph, was dead because there was no one to take care of Mary. That's why John was called on to do it. You think that hit him that his father died? Absolutely. He, he knew what it was like to experience grief. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweats blood because of the stress upon his life as he grieves. He gets us. He understands the pain that we experience. And so when we cry out to God in our pain, he gets it. You are understood by God as Jesus understands you because he's God and he's also a human. So in Christ, we see God's deep love for us. He loves us enough to come and find us in our brokenness so that we might be restored. This is grace upon grace. This is grace upon grace. So what are we to do as recipients of this grace? I think the most immediate thing is just to marvel. Marvel at the wondrous mystery of the incarnation. Worship the one who is both truly God and truly human, and then daily repent of your sins in favor of living a life worthy of the calling placed upon your life as a child of God brought to that place through Christ, having come to save you from your sins. That may sound incredibly broad, but we all know where we have sin to confess. And we all have unique situations. And we all feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which is also grace, right? An invitation to repent and turn back. And so may we do so. What, what sin has Jesus offered forgiveness for that you're still holding to? What are you holding on to today when you have the invitation to be in perfect reunion and relationship with the God of the universe who loves you? In other words, what are we settling for when God is right there with us? Perhaps living out the love of God amidst your relationships is a place to be more intentional. Just as God has become incarnate in our world, coming to dwell with us and bringing the light into the world and bringing the love of God to us, we have now, who have experienced that love, are now commissioned to go out and be incarnational in this world as well and carry the love of Jesus to those who don't know him. And so, you know, we, we all have unique opportunities to live for Christ each and every day in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs or elsewhere. We have people that we'll meet that others will not. And we have this opportunity to go and take the light of Christ to the world. And so where can you be generous with your time or attention or your resources to do just that? Who can you offer life-giving words to who may need them? Who do you need to apologize to and make amends with? Where can you offer grace to the broken people around you. Or, this, may be, this is really important, perhaps you're here and you realize you've never actually really experienced God's grace in the first place. Maybe you're wondering what all of that means. Please know that you are so loved by God, that he sees you in your struggle, and that he invites you to know him today. And don't leave today without understanding what that means for your life. What better time to meet Christ than during this Christmas season when we remember his incarnation 
and what he brings to us. What a truly perfect way to make this the most wonderful time of the year. Speaking of songs around the holidays, I'd like to wrap things up by reading a verse from one of my favorite carols. I'm sure you know this one. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. For so long, the world lay hopeless with nothing new under the sun. Then we know one night some angels delivered the news that in a small town, lying in a manger was God himself who had come to change the world. That message offers hope to every person who experiences the grief of our shared brokenness. And may it be so for you today. May each of you feel the worth of your souls. And may you believe that things will never be the same as together we see that new and glorious morn that Jesus ushered into this weary world. Rejoice and fall on your knees for our God has come. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.